Did I ever tell you guys about when uh, my friend in high school, as a joke, he was like, you guys want to watch me like light a whole pack of cigarettes uh, at once, you know, and take a puff off 20 cigarettes? Oh, God. He fucking inhaled and then just vomited all over our friend's driveway, (laughs) like immediately. (laughs) You can fucking die from that shit, dude. That is not cool. Yeah. Don't do that. No. Yeah, definitely not. I think when I was drunk once, I did like two maybe at a time. Oh, sure. You know, I've done two like for a lady, you know, like uh, what's that movie? Now Voyager, right? That's Charles Boyer in Now Voyager. He lights two, Mm -hmm. gives one to the broad. Mm -hmm. Sexiest shit ever. Yeah. (laughs) I definitely wasn't giving mine to a broad. I think it was more just (laughs) Just smoking two at a time. To get a laugh out of the guys. (laughs) I don't remember any girls being around. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, 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 oh. The truth is, guys, starting to get on my nerves. Oh, you want to crown them? They crown them, but they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the top. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts. My name is Andrew Stasulis, and I am joined here with Eric Marsh and Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a topic for the week, a theme for the week, and the other two hosts are tasked with bringing films to the table that meet the topic, address the topic, explore the topic. Um, It was my turn to pick this week. I was up, and uh, as I mentioned at the end of our episode last week, um, some of our listeners probably know this, but Marsh and I both teach at DePaul University, and we have a very special guest coming next week to visit us at DePaul as part of our Visiting Artist Series. We've got the great cinematographer Roger Deakins in town. He's going to be there doing workshops with the students, lighting setups, I'm told. Uh, There's a big uh, event at the Music Box, which, you know, if you're probably listening to this, it's too late. It's already sold out, so <laughs> don't bother. <laughs> but if you got tickets, good for you. Um, they're going to be screening, I think, uh, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. And Deacons will be there to talk about that film and his experiences as a long-serving and lauded cinematographer. So... I thought it might be fun this week for us to do a deep dive into those men and women behind the camera, the the great DPs and cinematographers, the great camera operators, the, the photographic minds in the world of cinema. So I asked the boys to bring me films that featured great cinematography work uh i had sort of said to them like almost think of it as if this is a a cinematographer's film on a certain level um and uh yeah we got a pairing of of some very very well shot films by cinematographers i'm very familiar with and and quite enjoy so without further ado let's bring the movies out marsh you had the earlier film 
So why don't you tell us what you brought? Sure thing. This was really, you know, I, I basically immediately thought of who I wanted to pick. And and my mind, uh, as it often does, went back to classic Hollywood, especially when it comes to cinematography. Uh, I just feel like personally, you know, I feel like they... Uh, they had it going on back then, you know? They shot so many movies. They basically invented lighting, you know, more or less. And they were the best that there ever was, you know? And uh, so my mind went to classic Hollywood um, and went to a cinematographer that worked with some of the greatest directors, some of my favorite directors, a cinematographer who worked with John Ford, happy birthday, Sam Fuller, Nicholas Ray, Tashlin, Hathaway, Kazan, Preminger, Dimitrik, you name it. All the greats. And I chose Joe McDonald, ASC, longtime cameraman and cinematographer who spent uh, most of his 50 years in Hollywood at Fox, uh, which is why, of course, he worked with uh, a lot of those directors I just named coming through Fox in the 1950s. And Joseph McDonald, uh, I couldn't really find like any information on him, which is insane. And I did like serious digging. I had Kyle looking stuff up it's basically like <laughs> going to the archives there's basically like no information about this man and his life that's Other, how you know he's cool yeah mm -hmm. and, and it's typical for classic hollywood to just yeah these guys worked anonymously you know and like yeah in fuller's autobiography he's like he was a great cameraman and then you know <laughs> so don't say anything else about it or whatever um so you know he shot for for our listeners i'll paint a picture uh like uh, any good old hollywood cinematographer he shot in academy ratio and cinemascope he was one of cinemascope's pioneers working at fox he shot in black and white he shot in color he shot indoors he shot outdoors he did it all. And uh, he shot, for instance, My Darling Clementine, the John Ford black and white, sort of almost gothic western. Uh, he shot the color noir Niagara starring Marilyn. Uh, he also did How to Make Marry a Millionaire, you know, and these sort of like bold, colorful films from the 50s. And I know you and I, Andy, have taught uh, Nicholas Ray's Bigger Than Life more than a few times in our history course. And I feel like... That's just one of the best shot films ever, you know? So I've like always been obsessed with him, of course, working with all these great directors. And it's just like a name that always popped on the screen. Like, who's this guy, Joe McDonald? Like his shit is so good. And so that's the direction that I went in. Uh, I picked one of my faves, House of Bamboo from 1955. Written and directed by Samuel Fuller. Uh, this is uh, a Fox, I guess, crime film uh, from the mid-50s in Cinemascope and Deluxe Color and is uh, notable for being shot in Japan. Uh, one of, if not the first uh, Hollywood film shot in Japan after the war, uh, and leave it to Fuller to come up with this crazy idea. He was basically assigned to remake a film from 1948 called Street With No Name, uh, and Zanuck was like, here, you should make this. And, he, and then it came up that they were near, they were doing like tax shit, you know, oh, you should shoot it. <laughs> you know, you should shoot it in Asia. We have a producer in Asia and, and Fuller, long time fascination uh, with Asia and Japan specifically. And so he rewrote this 
sort of like undercover uh, crime story and transposed it to Japan, where we've got uh, Robert Stack, uh, you know, bumbling his way into Tokyo to uh, sort of, cra- uh, you know, investigate or crack this uh, heist team slash pachinko uh, racket being run by ex-GIs from the war who uh, have stayed in Japan as criminals, led by the great Robert Ryan as Sandy, the leader of this gang. And uh, a lot of other stuff happens that I'm sure we'll talk about, but it is, uh, it's just an amazing looking movie to me. It's its colorful, the on-location stuff is, is unbelievable. And yeah, like to a certain extent, Japan is kind of just the backdrop to a certain extent, besides, of course, the core sort of love story that we'll get into. Uh, you know, it's just a bunch of white guys chasing each other around, around Tokyo, basically. Crazy white boys, you know? Uh, but Fuller was on to some shit here, and it does have some daring aspects for its time, as he was always pushing the envelope. It has an interracial love affair at the center of it, and it's also got some sort of queer uh, text and subtext involving Robert Ryan's character and his various Ichiban's number one boys throughout the movie. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a stunner, folks. I love it. It looks great, and Joe McDonald shot it. It's House of Bamboo. Great. You love to see it. When when did we watch that together? I was trying to remember. In the we, cinema? Yeah. We, we were all there, right? We were all there. I was trying to place this because- it. it. was the music box, right? September 1st, 2015. Yeah. And that's what I was trying to remember was, I have a vivid memory of talking to both of you after the screening, after the film, but I don't think I went with you. Oh, Sherman went with us. Right. Oh, so maybe I, that's what I was trying. I'm like, is this the first movie we all like consciously went to together? It's possible. Because uh, I know we, we were at that Friedkin screening and I was just there. And mm-hmm. we, you know, we like reflected on it later. But I remember talking to you guys at House of Bamboo and I was trying to remember, like, did we all go as a group? Because I would have been going with Sherman. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wild. That was almost 10 years ago. Oh, my gosh. Wow, 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 yeah. wow, wow. We saw a 35-millimeter print at Music Box, and God damn, it looked amazing. Yes, it sure did. It sure did. Um, yeah, well, before we get too uh, <laughs> lost in the, in the sands of time, um, let's talk about a film that itself is playing with the sands of time yes. and memory. Uh, Ryan, tell everyone about the film that you brought. Sure. I was trying to figure out exactly how I wanted to approach this topic because there were so many cinematographers that came to mind. And then especially when Marsh sent me his shortlist of cinematographers, there were so many that I like hadn't considered. And I was like, oh, geez, like about what about them? Because, yeah, my first instinct was classic Hollywood. And I was digging and I was going through and I had all these options, all these things. We were joking about what if we just bring two John Ford cinematographers on films that they didn't shoot with John Ford. And that like could have been interesting because, of course, he just worked with the greatest. But then I then it like the thing I think I wanted to lean in on was to really get to the heart of a cinematographer, was to think about one who I was very familiar with working with like a key collaborator. And then perhaps a film they made with someone that was not that key collaborator. So at first I was actually kind of looking at Agnes Goddard, who is famous for shooting all of Claire Denis' films, almost feels like a co-author of sorts, because it's always shocking, right? When 
a, a filmmaker is working with someone for a really long time, gets a new DP, and then you're like, oh, shit, the movie looks different. You know, like it's it's always really striking. And I've noticed that with Claire Denis films, noticed that with Herzog's films, uh, I don't like his contemporary DP. Uh, and I can't remember when the shift happens, but like it's noticeable, right? But then I started thinking about, okay, has there ever been a cinematographer that I've actually tried to emulate because of the impact they had on me? And there was one. And that is Mark Lee Ping Bing also known as Li Ping Bin. He is a Taiwanese cinematographer that is famously known for working with Ho Shen and essentially defining, in my mind, like a whole unique singular vision of cinema. And I one time tried to shoot a film with both of you, Mud Lake, uh, that like I, my direction to Ted, my cinematographer, the whole time was like, I want you to do this. Like, I want you to do Mark Lee Ping Bing. And I think the thing that I was so obsessed with was with him and am with the film I ended up picking, I'm glad it, it showcases, I think, some of his greatest talents, was both his use of natural light and also the way that he can make interiors feel much bigger through very, very subtle movement. Because Mark Lee Ping Bing, interestingly enough, when I was reading a little bit about him and his collaboration with Ho Xiao Shen, I was remembering, oh yeah, Ho Xiao Shen's like first couple features are pretty static. He was like not as into camera movement. And I learned it was Mark that told him like, we should be moving the camera. I want to put it on <laughs> tracks. And the thing about his work is that there's just some, it's like, it's like this uh, movement in stasis almost because the movements are so slow and he likes moving back and forth. It's both a mixture of being on dolly tracks and being really gentle or having the tension like really, really high on the tripod so that when the camera's moving, it's just like the softest movement. I, I love the way his movies look. And so I was really excited because I remembered he had shot a film I've been meaning to see for a really long time called Tempting Heart from 1999 directed by Sylvia Chang. And this film, there's kind of two ways you could describe it because it's deceptively simple. The simplest way of describing it is that it's a love story. And it's about, uh, it follows a love story in, the, in teenage years. Then they separate, they grow a little bit older. Uh, they have some connections kind of overlap again and then they keep getting a little bit over. But the more complicated way we can kind of think about this movie is that it's a love story filtered through the lens of a filmmaker who is now in middle age thinking about her past love and realizing that the love itself is perhaps less interesting than the way we talk about love or tell the story of love. I'm hoping I'm not being like too grandiloquent about it, but basically the film hops back and forth between the filmmaker working on this film with her screenwriter thinking about how they want to tell this story and new details arriving as the film goes on when we start to realize how other people are also perceiving the same story and their story and their role in it. It's a gorgeous film. It's got wonderful nighttime photography in particular. Uh, just the, the colors are unbelievable. And it's got that singular Mark Lee Ping Bing camera movement. Uh, it stars Gigi Lung and Takeshi Kaneshiro, who Johnny Toe saw in this film, was so obsessed with their chemistry, and then made a follow-up film called Turn Left, Turn Right, which I haven't seen yet. And funny enough, Gigi Lung, Gauntlet Returning Champion, she was uh, the main woman in Fat Choice Spirit. Kind of yep. fun. She's, she's great. She's a cutie, and she's a pop star. 
uh, and I think she's really good in this movie. And yeah, I mean, you know, there's the, the plot is pretty it's pretty straightforward, but there was something about this movie that I don't know, it like left me feeling like exceptionally melancholic afterwards. I like slept <laughs> Like a little strange, like the movie just kind of made me sad. Like it's so beautiful, but it got me like thinking about the past. And there was, I think there's like a real power to this film that I like maybe can't quite put my finger on. But um, it's also worth noting Sylvia Chang, the director, plays herself in it, uh, directing the film. So yeah, that's all I'll say for now. That is Tempting Heart from 1999. I guess I just. You know, in terms of like starting, I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's going too deep right off the bat, but simply because you, you, you brought up this curious feeling that you were left with in watching Tempting Heart, I, 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 I have to like, just sort of go there myself for a minute because yeah, as you described the film, it is, it is a love story of sorts, but, um, to me, I think the more overwhelming feeling that I got while watching the film is that it's a, a very thoughtful and uh, deep portrait of loneliness. Yeah. Which is very interesting because the movie is, is uh, certainly exploring the idea of a love story. I mean, that's even the framing of the film, a director who wants to, to sort of make this autobiographical film about a, um, you know, this, this, this sort of epic romance she had uh, been engaged in, you know, either like for real or not for real, but right. for real, you know, right? <laughs> I mean, there's those kinds of, uh, conceits of of you know fiction and 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 truth you know smashing against each other but but really to me i think that that feeling you're talking about is because this is a love story that isn't really about people who i think desperately love each other but people who are 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 sort of like battling loneliness and and at times find solace through their 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 journeys of 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 being kind of isolated and and finding moments of connection that that sort of stay that loneliness but but to me this movie felt like a a very 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 sort of like towering depiction of of like two lonely people who who have found each other and constantly lose each other and then find each other again, but ultimately like remain uh, separated from one another, you know? Um, so I, I think for me, that's, that's why I felt that way because as much as this is about them, you know, having a sort of like, you know, passionate, these, these sort of moments of great passion um, really the film kind of cooks in the spaces in between their their trysts, right. where they are not together, where they're separated by countries, by by and at times thousands of miles and and decades. Uh, so so yeah, I think it's a it's a very unique love story in that regard. If you wanted to go that direction, it makes me think of the famous Hong Kong film uh, titled Comrades almost a love story. And I was watching this film in my mind just being like, 
almost a love story. You have know? you seen because that I, movie? I actually haven't. Uh, and I know it's like supposed to be amazing. It know? is. And it's like this. I mean, yeah. I was going to say, you know, I wasn't going to talk too much about it because I hadn't, I wasn't sure if you guys had seen it, but. I mean, that is like, it would be the perfect double feature. It's like, it would be a fascinating double feature. It's very similar in terms of like a romance over time, separated by space, moving to different cities. Yeah, but go continue. <laughs> no, yeah. And then, you know, on the other hand, I think we can then, yeah, like look at uh, look at Fuller and connect it, not just because Japan is featured uh, <laughs> sure. in both of these films out of their country. But, you know, Fuller, again, trying to be the sort of firebrand he was, talked about giving the interracial relationship a happy ending was really important to him because historically these were tragic endings, right? In the sort of like racist Hollywood kind of perception of interracial uh, love and things like that. Like, oh, it had to end in like one of them dying, you know, like broken blossoms or whatever you know and he was like the japanese girls gotta catch a bullet yeah and and fuller was like god damn it they're gonna walk away in the sunset you know and that's gonna be subversive but so much of it is about yeah like that sort of central melodrama i mean for as much as this is like a gangster film it's also very heavily this like colorful melodrama between um mariko played by uh shirley yamaguchi and Robert Stack, you know, and their and their cultural differences, and also the the fact that there's like yeah, like undercover cop action going on or whatever within their relationship. But uh, it's also yeah, a love story, but not almost for real. You know, they they consummate it, unlike uh, our sad friends from Tempting Heart. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they, I mean, they well, do no, consummate they do, it, yeah. but but eventually, yeah. But see, I. I <laughs> And again, maybe it's like we're we're getting yeah. you know too 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 deep, but I I, I kind of saw the their relationship one as as you know when you watch the entire film, it's like the maturity that I think they both gain through these experiences and over time mm-hmm. is the realization that they aren't you know uh, t- true lovers, but very good friends. You know, and that's sort of the 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 comfort that they find in one another in their kind of like lonely experiences, both at times in like other relationships, you know, and it's like things go bad, you know, things uh, fall apart and and they can come back together and, and comfort one another. And, you know, yeah, sure. Have sex. But their big, I think, realization is, you know, like we're we're this is this is what it means to be really good friends like the best of friends if you put it in those terms there's something about the idea of the most beautiful part of their relationship just being the time they were able to spend together and not even the the romance that they shared right just literally the time spent with another person like that is the thing they cherish most because even at the end when they're thinking about you know it's like jumping straight to the ending but i do think it's really important to kind of like tie this in because i agree is when they're looking at some photographs that the man says he took uh when i missed you most um and it was thinking about that time thinking about sharing a moment together of watching the sun rise and i think i was left with this feeling at the end of the film of just 
being really melancholic about time gone by and thinking about all the beautiful time we've we've spent with other people, um, whether that be with friends, with lovers, and just things kind of disappearing. I mean, I think that the, the, the perfect mixture in this film is that it has this this youth, this youthful passion, uh, these aspirations where it feels almost naive when we're with them, but then it's all filtered through this like sobering middle age wisdom. I mean, but both of these films benefit from having just very wise directors that like it <laughs> ties into what you were just saying, Marsh, where it's like this. He's like, no, I'm this is definitive. This is how I'm dealing with this um, because they're both just extremely thoughtful. So they're taking things we may be used to, whether that be a Hollywood standard or romantic film standard some of the tropes and then undercutting a little bit being like no i've lived this is this is how i feel about these sorts of things yeah i think that's a i think that's a really astute observation you know uh because fuller will even go to the level of you know even in having his sort of like romance in this film like uh to show the the threats to it you know to show that that this is perceived by others like the couple in um tempted heart as as sort of like you know um star-crossed they they, they shouldn't be together that you know uh, society and and obligation should keep these two apart and yeah i think both directors are grappling with with a little bit of wish fulfillment but but mm-hmm. those wishes sort of being played with, yeah, in in very, very sort of different conclusions, you know? Yeah, it's really interesting to me, too. I guess one of the things revisiting House of Bamboo is I remember, you know, the dynamic moments that have camera movement, but I guess I'd kind of forgotten that a lot of the film are these really deceptive sort of lockdown long takes that you don't even like, you're like, oh, right, this has just been rolling forever because there'll be some like interesting staging, but it's like scope. And so there's so much going on. And a lot of the time, like it's just chilling and like letting this staging sort of play out like Robert Ryan sort of moving around you know the space or whatever and again it was like kind of a a Mark Lee Ping Bing approach where he's like so often kind of like just slightly distanced and kind of still kind of observing in these longer takes and I was kind of shocked how they had that that in common Um, it is really surprising I mean I I feel like one of the things Mark Lee Ping Bing is is the best at is doing a sequence shot in a tight room that you forget has been one shot this whole time where characters are moving between rooms or the things are happening in the foreground and also happening in the background simultaneously. And you your brain forgets that the camera has been rolling this whole time. And I agree. There's something very similar happening in House of Bamboo because that even you just saying it now is making me sit here and go like, oh, yeah, there, there were lots of shots like that. But because of the way it's blocked, it's like not something that's like always immediately coming to mind. I mean, I think one of my favorite images in any film mark shot uh is in the ho Shao shen film three times which is just like there's a sequence in someone's apartment and the way his camera always anchors on something and that is sort of what guides the, the movement there's this amazing scene where this woman is walking around her apartment and she's like looking for stuff and she walks into another room and the camera follows her and she's in an open doorway And then she moves over uh, behind the wall, and we can't see her anymore. 
but then she bends down to pick something up or to open like a drawer and the camera like pans down a little bit with the assumption that she's kneeled down but we can't see her we just know that that's why mark is moving the camera and then it moves back up when she stands up and then walks back into the room um and i i love his approach because he's doing something like that especially in some of the christmas party scenes in tempting heart the tree dude the tree yeah. is so prominent mm-hmm. but he'll like find an anchor that becomes like the the like the axis that the film is responding to in that scene. So even if he's dollying back and forth, there's like something we're holding on to. And I think that's like also what's happening in House of Bamboo so often. And I mean, like, I just imagine it's hard shooting in Cinemascope like that, in tight spaces like that, that, that's how you'd have to do it. You'd have to have an anchor. You'd have to be able to just really plan everything out and you, you can't wing it. Well, what's crazy to me in that sense, um, and and it's also kind of funny because Marsh and I off pod were we had just been sort of like uh, texting about this um, because I had stumbled across just reading about um, I think Fuller's just the the film he made just prior to this Helen High Water right yeah. and Helen High Water is a movie that Fuller made it's a submarine film and apparently. Uh-huh when Fuller was getting ready to make the movie, like Fox came to him and they were like, you have to shoot in this new format. We're trying to push CinemaScope. And Fuller was like, you know, what the hell is that? Or whatever, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and they basically like bullied him, made it a stipulation. Like he had to shoot this submarine movie in this new ultra widescreen format. And their whole thing was they're like, we're, we're forcing directors to do it to show directors like, you can do it. Like you can do it. But what's interesting about Helen high water is that Fuller was like, it's a submarine movie. It's a claustrophobic environment that he had to shoot in this, like extremely, you know, this, this very peripheral format now of CinemaScope. And I haven't seen it. I looked at some images and stuff like that. And by all accounts, people are like, they did a great job. And Joe McDonald Joe shot McDonald it. Shot yeah. it. <laughs> so, now, the second time around, after having gone through that experience, this film shows that they like really understand what they can do with the margins. And yes, that anchor is important, but like these images, like they they are using every inch of that frame. They yeah. know what they can do, and they're having like a ball with these compositions and really like showing you the breadth of what something like CinemaScope is ideally suited for, which is again, creating, you know, in, 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 a, in a new way, right? Uh, you know, less framing in depth, even though there's still a bunch of framing in yeah. depth going on because that's also what they've been trained to do for so long, but framing both like, on now both axes as well, right? So framing at the edges and then framing in depth. And you get this like 
incredibly like immersive sense in so many of these shots, whether it's an interior or an exterior, they're going to extremes in very interesting ways. Um, you know, early on, uh, the, there's this, you know, um, heist sequence that we're sort of like introduced to the film with where there's a basically a yeah, train, robbery. train robbery. Yeah. 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 There's a train robbery in the Japanese countryside. A military train is, is held up by, you know, we don't know yet, but we will eventually learn Robert Ryan's boys. Um, and, uh, a bunch of guards are like, sort of like knocked out, but in, a way in which I was kind of like, these guys got to be dead, right? I mean, each one of these guys is getting basically strangled with a chain. <laughs> yeah. and the, the miracle is that violent, they yeah. all lived because yeah. that was some brutal <laughs> takedowns. But one U.S. soldier guarding the train is shot and killed, and he's dead. And, like, basically the title cards start coming up on this crazy shot of just, like, the snow, it's this snowy Japanese countryside. This film is shot in winter as well, which is ja Japan in winter is a whole vibe for sure. But like this, this train on a little kind of like small bridge and this dead GI just underneath it on a snow bank. And in the extreme foreground in our POV, we just have these two like boots yes. sticking up in the snow. And then this Mount Fuji. Yes, Mount Fuji in the background, in the deep, deep background. And then this train like stretching across the cinemascope frame. I mean, it is an incredibly like, I mean, it's a Kurosawa-esque like use of, of like, you know, a, pa a painterly composition of, of every single plane having something in it for our eye to sort yeah. of like dance over. I was thinking about Kurosawa a lot because I remembered when I watched uh, Seven Samurai with the DVD commentary, like way back in the day, and I think it was like Tony Raines or something, and his the commentary is really funny because every now and then he'll just stop and go like, look, look at that. There's like 12 <laughs> yeah. guys on screen and you can see all of their heads. No one's face is obstructed. And throughout House of Bamboo, there are so many great shots of just like all those dudes like spread across the cinemascope frame so perfectly. Um, but yeah, I mean, truly just like that opening sequence, I, I like can't wrap my head around what that must have looked like. For, like for an audience to see that in 1955 for like a relatively well a very new format i mean it looks like a painting it's out of it's out of this world it, it's still you watch it today and you go like how did they do this like it just like looks unreal and that's also what i what i mean it's like this was their like second attempt <laughs> yeah it looks like they've been doing this for 15 fucking My years God. already they you have know? so much confidence right like immediately after that we then get stack you know, entering into town, you know, in Yokohama, then going to Tokyo, and he's blundering around playing the American sort of heel in a leather jacket. And he goes to, you know, he's going to find uh, Mariko, basically, because she was married to uh, a gangster that died in this heist, and the cops had sort of linked her uh, to this guy. And so, you know, here comes Robert Stack, and he goes to this rooftop where there's like this coordinated kabuki dance uh, rehearsal going on. And I mean, the movement, it, it tracks back like really, really far. And then all of a sudden Stack enters far frame right, and then it starts dollying to the left. 
and tracking him as he then talks to these women, and then it tracks back, and there's this huge performance going yeah. on in the background. There's like, there's like 40 women dancing. Yeah. You know? And it's just a, yeah. it's a, it's a wonder. And yeah. you're just like, this is insane. And like, you have like an entire cityscape, like in the deep background again, like Mount Fuji, you know, you just always have this, this crazy backdrop in like all of these shots of, of Japan, of the world, of the city of Mount Fuji. I mean, they're, they're so unbelievable. I love that, that moment too. Like just like Robert Stack's introduction. Cause I just all day long. Cause like, yeah, you know, and this is also like, Fuller, right? So there's so many layers to everybody. And like you said, we're, we're being introduced to Robert Stack as this just kind of like, basically like thug yeah. American. And he's just such, like, he's just such an American. And I really do, again, rewatching this film, like get a sense that like Fuller, Fuller understands the idea of like, the pig American <laughs> and the pig yeah. American abroad, you know? Mm-hmm. And he just establishes it so well because like, when Robert Stack walks up to like what I'm sure would be a very like striking thing for an American in like 1946. Is that when this takes place or 47? The movie's shot in 55, released in 55. Yeah, but it's it's set, I think it's I just think set a 40s. couple years earlier, maybe early 50s. Yeah, I thought they said 40s, but I, I could have. Either way. They throw out a lot of like <laughs> dossiers and criminal records. So like the, the years get a little but mixed up. But it, No, but you're right. It's crucially not like the year it's it's coming yeah, out it's because it even 55. opens with like newspaper voice you right. know in a fuller way yeah like. but like he, you know again what i'm saying is it's like seeing all of these like kabuki dancers i mean that would be a sight for a westerner for an for anyone right and stack just like like saunters in he's like not even paying attention to the what's going on doesn't even care and just like walks up to a woman and it's just immediately like Mariko Nagoya, you know, <laughs> they're all like, what? He's like, Mariko Nagoya. And they're like, I guess this guy's looking for Mariko Nagoya or something. I mean, he's so fucking rude. He's so mean. You know, these aren't like. Speak English. Anybody speak a little English? Hi. Hi. These are gangsters that he's trying to strong arm. You know, he's just a fucking pig of an American. And it's like, yes, we will see a certain softening of his character. We will see that certain parts of it are an act. But again, layers with Fuller, layers with Fuller. Because like even his attempt at like infiltrating the gang, which is basically like pretending to be an upstart gangster. He's just going around like beating the shit out of Japanese businessmen, like shaking them down, extorting them. I know there's, there's a moment that I feel like has to be a joke as it relates to that with, with Sam Fuller's perspective on the pig American. Cause it, it's, it happens maybe like halfway through the movie when he's really shacking up with Mariko getting kind of domestic at, at her place and there's a moment where she just says domo regato and he's just like domo regato like what's that and like i know that in a normal movie like a stupid movie that would be the joke like oh yeah the westerner doesn't know what it means but i feel like sam fuller's joke here is that like look at how ridiculous this fucking guy is he has been here for days if not weeks he presumably lives there if he's military police exactly and he doesn't know what thank you means like that Mm -hmm. i thought was so funny (laughs) yeah it's it's perfect and i think again that's you know fuller's always trying to complicate everything because that's you know how he saw life and it's Mm -hmm. like 
he's not even really a heroic character uh, in in really that many ways. Anyways, really, you know, he's kind of just another gangster, you know, this cop yeah. uh, who comes in and starts blundering yeah. around. And, a gangster with a badge. Yeah. And I think, you know, this film has one flaw and it's only one that we can recognize looking back. And it's uh, there's no Yakuza because in real life he would have just gotten killed by the Yakuza for doing what he did. (laughs) But instead of there being the the Yakuza, uh, there's Robert Ryan's GI gang, which, again, that was the concept he had. He had this concept before it was set in Japan, a film about GIs who were running a heist ring. Because, you know, he was in the army. He knew. Yeah. He knew yeah. these guys, basically, and was like, yeah, a lot of them stayed on. Oh, for sure. Know? For sure. Yeah, but good thing they didn't run into some of uh, Fukusaku's boys, dude. They oh, my God. They pretty quick they ended there. up in the graveyard of honor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, for it's, sure. It's funny. One of the biggest connections, I feel like, between these two films that we haven't really touched on yet is that they both are, in certain respects, love triangles <laughs> and yeah. there's there's certainly many misconnections and uh, misreads amongst each other about feelings friendship love affection um well, because well really i mean you're i mean it's more like quadrangles i mean sure <laughs> uh and and maybe even more than that but but certainly at the minimum i would say we're dealing with some love quadrangles going yeah. on yeah and the and the, like a queer element to both of them because yeah. you know obviously i think that's certainly what you're alluding to that's what as, I'm talking as about, well yeah. right because it's chen li right chen li is like the third wheel in this relationship when they're teenagers uh between the two sort of like star-crossed almost lovers and there's like yeah Chen Li who again the way the film uh proceeds and complicates things right it's like oh she's jealous you know of this budding relationship because she likes him but then of course we learn over time that like no she's hopelessly in love with Sheru and Ho Jun Sheru yeah. right so like she's actually in love with Sheru not Hojun, like, and that uh, complicates everything so much, you know. Yeah, I and I think that that's why I, it it just ties in perfectly with what you were saying, Andy, about it being a film about loneliness, because that really hit for me when, as the film develops, and of course, first Chen Li does admit to Sheru, like, I, I love you, and you know, more than as a friend, like, I'm actually in love with you, and she's rejected. And later in the film, when they get older, we find out that Chen Li has married Ho Jun. And it it's tragic because she seems to have married both out of, um, you know, a longing for a love that passed her by that was unrequited. And then also just out of loneliness. Sure. <laughs> you know, this was someone she knew that she could go to. And even Ho Jun was shocked when he learned because he thought, they were truly in love and that they had just fallen out of love. But it becomes clear for him that it was kind of this desperate need for connection to have someone close to them to not be so lonely. And like, yeah, like a in that sense, a, a compromise of sorts yeah. for these people, you know, and 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 maybe a way for both of them to to sort of still keep that flame or affection, or whatever for uh, Sheru 
alive, right? That it's like, yeah. you used to be so close to her. You remind me of those times when we were all together before the great split, you know? But but yeah, and then of course, in House of Bamboo, you got a, you got a lot of unrequited love uh, uh, zipping around from, from, you know, every corner of the Cinemascope frame, <laughs> dude. Poor Griff. Poor Griff. You know what's funny? So yeah, we, 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 when Robert Stack, of course, you know, um, is able to infiltrate the, the gang and, and his arrival to the gang again is just one of the, the, the most masterful shots you'll ever God, see. It's so good. Yeah. He's, he's in the midst of like shaking down yet another like Japanese businessman. And then from again, like out of nowhere in the, the edge of the cinemascope, fr cinemascope frame, uh, another man in a suit comes in and just decks Robert Stack. And he goes flying into the initial background of the shot, which is, of course, the sort of like, you know, the, the paper walls of a, of a Japanese, you know, back room somewhere. And he, of course, just goes straight through it dropping the wall to now reveal again these sort of like seven men in suits staged perfectly <laughs> across the, yeah. but like now like 20 feet back yeah. in, the, in the in the in the frame i mean it's robert ryan sitting on a stool in the center like making this point in the middle of the image yeah like. and they look like a fucking boy band dude i mean it's like nsync suddenly but <laughs> but yeah, uh, we then get sort of introduced to the dynamics of the group. And this is already being sort of set up by Japanese culture, this idea of sort of like hierarchy and rank, you know, and, and he's constantly asking for the number one man, the number one boy, the Ichiban. Uh, we then see that in this group, there is a very, very clear like hierarchy of, of men, of boys. Uh, underneath Robert Ryan and the Ichiban that we we quickly learn uh, of this group, the, the the Ichiban of of this group, the number one boy of this group is Griff, played by Cameron Mitchell, who very quickly picks up on maybe an attraction, maybe a vibe, something between Robert Ryan and Robert Stack, and he very quickly says. I don't like it. I don't like this guy. He recognizes the threat for Robert Ryan's attention. And this will, of course, reach near Shakespearean levels as the film progresses. But I did want to say just specifically about Griff, because Griff is played by Cameron Mitchell, as I mentioned. Um, I had just watched, I was telling the boys before we recorded, I had just watched uh, Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'd finally seen it. And it, it hit me so hard that the character of Rick Dalton is a bit of a facsimile in Once Upon a Time of Hollywood, of a certain kind of, you know, figure, man in the classic Hollywood actor contract player coming to grips with, like, the end of, of the old way of doing things. And it, it really hit me that uh, Tarantino has Cameron Mitchell, like, very prominently in his mind for Rick Dalton. Um, because... 
Cameron Mitchell is a guy that started in the 40s and in the 50s. He had done TV. He had done, you know, struggled sort of. He was in a bunch of Fuller movies, kind of a bit player, and then was one of those guys in the 60s suddenly being like, shit, what do I do now? And he went to Italy and made spaghetti westerns. He made some peplum films, but he was like disgusting in Italy. And he makes a joke in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like, oh, he gained 15 pounds eating all this pasta. And that is Cameron Mitchell in Minnesota Clay, Sergio Corbucci's Minnesota Clay. And if you remember in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, Rick Dalton goes over there to be in Corbucci's film, uh, Nebraska Jim. So Minnesota Clay, Nebraska Jim, Tarantino being yeah. this guy. You got to imagine, you know, yeah. House of Bamboo. Like. Yeah, no, I definitely see that. He, he, That's the, the Rick Dalton vibe, I would say, too, just encountering Cameron Mitchell again in this. It's funny, the only, when I'm thinking about, like, the intense gaze, I was just thinking about Ho Jun being, like, overwhelmingly attractive in, in Tempting Heart and, like, there's not a lot written about this movie, uh, but like the one bit of trivia on IMDb says that Sylvia Chang thought the actor, uh, Takeshi Kaneshiro, was so good looking that it was distracting. And that's why she had him have acne as a teenager because wow. he like looks like a boy band heartthrob hot. with his guitar. Like the shots of him laying in bed, strumming the guitar with like a nice green lamp above him. Just or laying like, on the roof in Japan. Oh you know? my God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I will agree with her in that sense. He, he is a, a, an angelic presence. He's a Truly. very beautiful man. And yeah. uh, I find myself staring at him quite a bit throughout the film and thinking, it's a little distracting to have him just <laughs> yeah. sitting here like this. I mean, I feel that way about Gigi Lung, too. She's just like such a cutie. <laughs> but he especially. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up glances, though, because I think, you know, one thing that uh, it took me a, a, a minute to get adjusted to Tempting Heart is the way not only the, the nonlinear stuff, which like there's repetition and sort of like a pretty bold kind of flipping between the two. Yeah. And flashbacks within flashbacks, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and revisions but, almost at times. Yes. Um, but also like glances, right. And, mm -hmm. and how much of the film is built around glances, which is again, why it reads so much like longing, uh, and that like melancholy feeling, even when they're like courting each other, it's this whole thing where like, they don't talk to each other. They just keep glancing at each other and seeing each other around. And there's like, not even really scenes at first in this yeah. movie. Like we're just getting this like, slice of life kind of again almost like Shao Shen but like much faster mm -hmm. we're experiencing these teenagers lives but it's just like a couple of glances and then we'll move on to a new scene again a couple more glances and then we move on to a new scene and I was like what is going on in this movie and obviously like finally yeah it's like settled into it no problem but yeah. like but there's, yeah. there's there's so many glances that Shea Rue like eventually makes a joke and says I thought you were mute yeah. Because this guy just never talked to her. Yeah, get a grip, dude. Read the room. And I, I think, again, that's also why, you know, as their relationship progresses from, you know, shall we say, a certain kind of like puppy love and infatuation to them both being now like fully formed, you know, individuals mm -hmm. and adults, when they do like reconnect at a few moments, like 
they kind of almost discover that they don't have anything in common when they talk to each other, right? Just the past. Just the past, past, right? Just those glances, just that longing, you know, and that they come from like two now completely different paths in life, two completely different worlds, and and they don't... they don't mesh well. They don't coexist. They, they, they really kind of like don't have anything to say to each other. And again, on a certain level, they don't need to say, uh, because they, they have this kind of like deep physical attraction, this, this like almost, you know, sort of like pheromonal pull towards one another. Yeah. But, but it's, (laughs) it's when they open their mouths that everything always sort of falls apart. I really liked when they meet up in Japan on accident, right? They just sort of encounter each other and then they like go out to eat and she's like, God, your hair, it's like 10 years old, you know, like the long sort of like, yeah, emo boy hair. Yeah, your hair sucks. And yeah, that's like really like what they talk about is like, oh, yeah, like you haven't really changed at all, you know? Um, It's a lot of remember when, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Which, you know, Tony Soprano will tell you is the lowest form of conversation. <laughs> if you remember his, you know, when he almost killed Polly Walnuts. And yet, <laughs> and yet, you know what Tony Soprano loved to do? Remember guys on TCM. Yeah, you know? he loved to remember. Tell <laughs> <laughs> uh, Carmelo about House of Bamboo. Yeah, very <laughs> sort of complicated man with a lot of layers himself. Right? But, but yeah, you know, and again, I mean, like I was saying with Cameron Mitchell, I mean, House of Bamboo is just filled with glances. It's It's so much... You know, there's so much like paranoia that develops within that group, obviously because of this sort of, you know, queer coded subtext you've described of these men and their relationships to one another, but also this, this sort of paranoia of, of betrayal, this paranoia of, of, of a, of a sort of, uh, threat that always kind of exists, especially within the group because they have this strange code in their kind of like heist that apparently any guy that gets wounded on a heist is immediately executed by the nearest man. You know, it's like the (laughs) the most cutthroat shit ever. I mean, so brutal. And it's like, yes, they're this team, they're this unit, they're together, but their, their loyalty is, is also so fragile and so ruthless in terms of, of this idea of, I guess, getting away with it, that, that at the drop of a hat, they'll, they'll put a bullet in their buddy if he slows them down in any way, shape or form. So again, you kind of see this, this sort of like toxic masculine power play amongst all these guys, this kind of psychological layer of, of a bunch of dead men, all like sharing a space together and wondering like, Who's going to be the guy that delivers the bullet to my head on this heist? I was thinking it would be a really cool dynamic for a video game, like a multiplayer heist video game where that like you lose if one of your dudes is injured and like doesn't make it. And then like it's up to you to like make the call of like shooting your buddy in the head. Something to think about. (laughs) Which is why it's so funny again when you like take all this into account because they go on to a heist. Oh, yeah. They go on to a heist. Of the cement company. The cement company. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The cement company. This is why, again, I was like, this time around too, I was like, Michael Mann has to love this movie because 
Like most of the heists that they're doing, right? That's like Michael Mann professional thief shit. They're not robbing banks and casinos. They're robbing a fucking cement company. They're robbing, you know, like a, a, you know, just some office somewhere. And yes, they will up the stakes later on in the game. But like the robbing of the cement company is just such... Like, yeah, that's yeah. pro And they're tactical. Shit. They have these smoke bombs, which, again, give this, like, crazy texture in their escape. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, oh the God. opening heist is, I mean, again, think of, like, Michael Mann and his movies. The opening heist is just a heist to set them up for further heists. Yep. Because you got to boost everything. You don't buy it. You steal it. So it can't be traced. I mean, absolutely. But, but yeah, they're on the cement company heist. And, yeah, one of their guys gets wounded. And right away, you know, Robert Ryan, like, just fucking, like, puts a bullet in his brain and then they're still running the japanese cops are just like unloading their revolvers at them and uh robert stack like gets gets wounded slightly in the leg slightly in the leg and griff just immediately is like oh yes like he's so (laughs) he's so excited to shoot him and robert ryan is like no stop yeah no i love him yeah yeah grab him save him and griff almost is like oh like this is bullshit like i should have been able to shoot this guy and i think they do later on have like a this like weird like bitchy argument about like why he should be dead but also robert ryan is having to like explain it to all the guys and he's sort of like pacing around being like, i don't know why i did it yeah like, why <laughs> did i do it i don't know why i did it somebody tell me why i saved eddie countermanded my own order you tell me you're not my brother I don't owe you anything. You never stuck out your neck for me. Why did I stop Griff from finishing you off? Maybe it's because it was your first job. Maybe that's it. But I'll tell you one thing. It'll never happen again. The one thing he's saying... The one thing he isn't saying is like, maybe because I want to fuck him, you know, maybe, maybe because what we all know is the reason you saved him. But yeah, it's, it's so goofy. I love it. There's one thing too, that really registered with me, you know, now seeing it a couple times, but I, I really do love that their gun supplier uh, is Harry Carey Jr. You know, speaking of Ford and all of a sudden he'll just like pop up with like a, a suitcase, just a little suitcase, like right before the heist. I assume because like you're not allowed to carry guns in post-war Japan. So it's like you just got to meet Harry Carey Jr. outside the heist and he like pops open his little suitcase and they all grab their yeah. pistols. Everybody like, gets their assigned gun, you know. God, it's so funny it had me thinking if do you think there's any cement factories that are in operation right now where the like security staff is instructed to just open fire on dudes that try to rob them sure probably (laughs) you do you think so okay yeah Yeah. the the depiction of the japanese like police and security personnel throughout this film i gotta say is uh is quite frightening in terms of their 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 willingness to just completely unload the minute they see any kind of threat. I mean, that comes up later when they're at like even the the jewelry store or something like that. And like the the minute a Japanese cop sees the shadow of one of these guys, he just drills him with like six bullets. I mean, they are they're firing those bullets. Yeah, asking questions later, for sure. They are. Yeah, they're shooting first and and definitely asking questions later. It's hilarious. I want to talk about the lava lamp. 
Uh, <laughs> a tempting heart, <laughs> tempting heart opens with a, you know the titles and a close up of a lava lamp. But really, that's just I want to pivot and talk about like uh, what this film reminded me of is like Millennium Mambo because there's a lot of good like nightclubs and mm-hmm. like uh, I loved the cinematography in. Uh, just like, yeah, the social sort of like scenes and textures of these spaces. I mean, I think that's certainly a commonality these films have is on location shooting. And obviously there's a stark difference between the sort of naturalism, even though it's heightened a little bit, you know, in Tempting Heart. Uh, it's much more like, yeah, it's like softer and, and working with the environment. And it's not as lit, right, obviously, than a Hollywood film from 1955. Uh, but being in all those spaces it's just like i don't know there's so many and and they always find this interesting angle or threshold both films obsessed of course like all good dps frames within frames doorways thresholds um i don't know just visual feast all around one of the interviews i read with mark lee was that he he said that uh like lighting technicians used to make fun of him on set right. when he was starting out because he didn't like using lights. He liked yeah, he was using like the natural first guy light. that was like fuck lights in Taiwan. Right. And, and everyone was like, like, what is he doing? Yeah, like he's a joke. He doesn't know <laughs> what he's doing. He's just a clown. And his main reason for it, which I think relates to what you were talking about, was that I mean, apart from the way that he just likes the way it looks, but one of his instincts was he was tired of trying to block out these scenes and working with directors like Ho Xiao Shen and having to worry about marks and peop- and actors having to worry about where the, the lights were. He wanted them to just have the freedom to be able to move around and then he would respond to them. He wanted to respond to them as opposed to them having to like follow any rules that he was laying down for them. And I feel like with things like Millennium Mambo and especially this film, so many of those locations stand out because he just finds his appropriate place and his way of capturing that natural light. So he's not as invasive and it almost feels like that's why each space feels pretty unique. I I was reading stories about how he would take wood, like he would just have like the uh, art department save a few planks of wood and he would paint them like green so that he could use that to reflect a little bit of light if there was like a small green light in the room um, instead of coming up with a rig with gels and everything like that. Everything was always really soft, and he just used some things he had to keep it as as low-key and as non-invasive as possible. And that's I feel like that's why he just fits in with nightclubs. That's why he can capture an alley looking like something out of this world. Yeah, the interior work especially, I think, is is where you see that uh, that sort of integration within the 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 world the camera is like integrated into the world in a way in which you you really do forget that you're at times like looking at like people being filmed by a camera you know that that you're you are like there you're sitting at the bar with these people or you're you know uh, at the edge of the table at the like the Christmas party or something like that. Um, he does in that sense, I think, really like kind of place place the camera in a way in which it never feels like showy or obtrusive. And, and then you really do appreciate the mastery only after the fact, more often than not when we like leave a scene and you, you see then a total a total adjustment to a completely different look. 
a completely different kind of setup. And it's like, okay, he's not just like going through a, a playbook of, you know, here's how you shoot a scene. Here's how you establish a space. Here's the establishing shot. You know, that, that very kind of corny basic approach to cinematography that so many people do by the numbers that, you know, again, classic Hollywood like invented, right? Oh yeah. Like, here's how you capture space. And it's a mm -hmm. very, very regimented, very rudimentary way. Uh, here's how you film a conversation. Here's how you frame people when they're having a, a, a two way conversation and that sort of thing. I was thinking of, and again, I know it's like he, he, he sort of worked a little bit also. I mean, it wasn't like entirely him, but like, uh, I was thinking of uh, uh, in the mood for love. Oh yeah, yeah, and and a, a very similar way in which so many of the interiors, especially in that film, are you know meant to be these very cramped, very claustrophobic spaces. And and again, the way that it's sort of like I wonder, like, where did you put the camera? Like, how did you how did you even yeah. get this thing set up? Like, where's the crew? You know, I mean, and I'm sure they probably didn't have a ton of people behind the camera for a lot of those shots, but. But you really do feel that. I mean, it sounds like a, a cliche to say it, but that that kind of like fly on the wall sense of of presence in in the interiors. It always feels in, in everything he shoots that I've seen. It feels like yeah, he is a part of a part of the space and and reacting to the space. It's not predetermined. It it just flows, you know, with it in in that way. Yeah. I feel like he never has an awkwardly wide lens when he's in tight spaces. And I think that's one of the ways he always feels really integrated. And then that makes me think about what you asked Andy is how did he even fit in the room? It, his lenses sometimes feel as though they're longer lenses, like 50 millimeter right. or more. And it's like, how did he fit in here? <laughs> like, how does everyone, yeah, they're not wide angles, right? You know? Exactly. And I think one of the things that's pretty interesting as a distinction between these two styles and thinking about classic Hollywood style of cinematography and and what people were doing in the 90s and onwards to kind of shake things up. I do feel as though, you know, you could take any still image from House of Bamboo and just go like, holy shit, look at yeah. that, right? But it's really when the camera's moving, when we're actually watching a scene play out, when the stuff that Mark Lee Ping Bing is doing is most impressive, I feel like, like if you just took a shot of, you know, the Christmas party, you'd be like, oh yeah, that looks nice. But when you're sitting there and watching the Christmas party, when you're watching everyone move around and when you, when you see the camera just like gently swaying back and forth, that's when it kind of just like makes my eyes just go bug eyed. Now it's funny cause Andy, you said, you know, in your pitch for the topic, like, you know, maybe bring a, a cinematographer's film. And I'm thinking like, well, that could mean kind of like two things, right? It could mean a movie that has like very bold cinematography, like formalist sort of cinematography, or is really a cinematographer's film, a film that like unobtrusively integrates with the director's <laughs> vision and studio style of the time, you know? Like, And I think, I think both of these films, they're not... I mean, I think House of Bamboo is showy because Fuller has a has a sense of flair and it's, you oh, know, a yeah. cinemascope from the 50s. But like it's still, you know, it's got these radical long takes. He loved that, but it's still classic Hollywood style, you know, um, and it's uh, the cinematography like it, it serves the story. Right. Yeah, It can be prosaic and functional. 
Exactly. And and I think both films we see just like very functional cinematography for the aesthetic the directors have and are going for, right? This sort of in Tempting Heart, it's like we're remembering, we're kind of flowing through time and bobbing around these spaces. I mean, he's the master panner, you know? I was envisioning scenes that don't exist in the film because there's all those scenes of Sylvia Chang describing to the writer <laughs> what this all felt like when he calls into question, oh, why would they do this? And she's like, well, I think it's because it feels this way. And I'm imagining other scenes of Sylvia Chang talking to her cinematographer in the same way. Capture yeah. my memory. Capture the way I'm telling my memory, even if it's not true to my experience, that sort of thing. And it's like the classic uh, story that Bill Duke tells about Fuller, you know, when Bill Duke asked him, why are you putting the camera there, Sam? I was taught at AFI that the camera has to be from some sort of perspective. And Fuller said, yeah, it's my goddamn perspective, <laughs> you know? Uh, and the camera was like under a table or something. <laughs> so like, And you, you, you know. see, I mean, you see that in this movie. I mean, there are a lot of... Uh, extreme angles, lots of like high angles, particularly. Oh my God. When the guy's like bleeding out at the beginning and like the overhead of the, like, I also like that they're like bullying a dead man. Of course, like this guy's bleeding out and they're like, tell us who's in the gang. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there are like times when he's just kind of establishing areas and spaces where it's like they got up on the roof of some high ass building to establish like guys walking into this office or something like that. I mean, they're like expressionistic at times in how high they are and how extreme they are. And even like some of the intimate scenes with uh, Robert Stack and um, uh, uh, what's I'm sorry, I'm blanking on her name again. Um the, the actress or the, the character of uh, Shirley Yamaguchi? Shirley Yamaguchi, yeah. In some of their, like, love scenes, like, he's, like, above them, like, looking down on yeah. them, either, like, laying on the ground or in bed or something like that. You know, there aren't a lot of, like, neutral angles. I mean, there are definitely, like, neutral angles, but, like, Fuller is is already in 55, yeah, going to, to extremes in very interesting ways. Yeah, I mean, I never would have thought that someone could shoot um, an American having his breakfast in uh, in a little circular Japanese tub with, with such gusto in a two five five cinemascope frame. That's right. <laughs> I love how happy Robert Stack is in that tub too when he it's gets that beautiful eggs. scene. Yeah, there's a you know it's funny because Stack wasn't uh, wasn't famous when this movie was made, and he came as a uh, a personal recommendation from Bud Boddicker because they had just shot like the bullfighter and the lady and Boddicker was like, this guy, he's he's hot shit. You should use him. But Gary Cooper wanted to be in this movie and Fuller was like, we're going to be shooting on location in Japan. We can't have Gary Cooper running around like everyone would just be like. It's Gary Cooper, it's Gary you know, Cooper, yeah. and so he was like purposely like we got to find a, an American no one knows so we can shoot on the streets. Yeah. And they did. And isn't do... Gary Cooper like eight feet tall? Yes, I mean, but yeah. that's also why they cast Robert Ryan. They wanted tall sure. guys to yeah. sh to heighten, you know, Fuller. He's like Japanese people are kind of short, <laughs> you yeah, know. Whatever yeah. we need to we need to exaggerate this. Like Robert Ryan's tall as hell, that's so right. like of course he's the gang leader. 
but they did shoot on the streets and they shot clandestinely as well. And I, in, in Fuller's autobiography, he tells a story about how Stack got like mobbed on the street because they uh, liked the scene in the film. These people thought he stole something, but he didn't. And they like a whole group of Japanese guys were like beating up on Robert Stack. And he was like pissed uh, about the incident. You know, God, <laughs> but, I, I wonder if that came like before that scene that they shot and then uh, yeah. Fuller, you know, knowing Fuller him being like, Ooh, that's good. We got to use that. We got to throw yeah. that in there, you know? <laughs> Cause like they couldn't save him cause they were like shooting, you know, either on a rooftop or like through a yeah. wall or something. They were like hidden filming him on the street and it was like a whole debacle. That's amazing. <laughs> At first, I thought you were going to say, you know, the thing is actually that Robert Stack, more of a shower guy than a tubman, well, I learned. Probably, but, <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> he actually liked him scrambled, not yeah. side up. Yeah. <laughs> on a shingle. Yeah, on a, shit, on a sh- fucking shingle. It's just like such great character development, like this guy in the tub t- not joking and saying, like, I have my breakfast in the tub every morning. And that being like the big culture clash, you know, she's like, okay. <laughs> I think one of my other favorite, you know, two of my favorite moments in Tempting Heart, one's just a joke, uh, but I was thinking about when we were talking um, about how they were playing Remember When and when they're getting drinks in Japan, they they flash back to when Gigi uh, Shiro made her, her punch and she barfed all over her heartthrob at the party. That yes. was really nice. That's like my favorite version of a meet cute for sure, like barf all over his shoes. Yeah, that had you written all over it. Yes. Just like girl approaches, like let's dance, and she hurls. Great scene. I I think my overall take on the film of what I found, um, you know, really, really sort of like, I guess, where, when, I should say, when the film really started to stand out to me as something, um, something truly unique and special, um, was, you know, like it, it sort of took a little while for me to really kind of appreciate maybe how much, how many layers there are to the film that don't immediately reveal themselves. But it's like, as you work your way through the film and, and we, you know, we do go back and forth to these moments of, of, you know, Sylvia Chang, you know, planning this film, working through this, this screenplay that they're writing that you start to question stuff. And like late in the film, we then go back and it's like, we, we revisit moments and we revisit moments we've already seen, but now we have a slightly different perspective on those events a slightly different take or we're looking at now the, the aftermath of an event, but from a different character's perspective. And then we start to go, but did any of this actually happen? I mean, did it happen like this? Like how much of this is true and how much of this is just a story that's being written because we have, you know, these flashbacks to, Takeshi Kenoshiro and and to the other actress playing her, Sylvia Chang, when she's younger. But then when you really get late in the film, we then see Sylvia Chang go to a funeral invited by 
uh, you know, who we expect to right. see Takeshi Kamishiro, <laughs> but it's a totally different guy. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, that is like, yeah, and 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 again, <laughs> like I know that already the conceit is supposed to be that like, well, these are the younger versions, and these are the versions of me in the film, but that it's like now we have a whole. We have a we have a different layer now that's been added on top that I think encourages you to really truly question everything else that preceded it in terms of its its actual uh, having taken place, its actual happening. Yeah, because at first you go like, oh, this is just her putting down the story of her life. And then it's like five years later and she's working in the fashion industry. And then they even have that conversation in like the quote present with the screenwriter. Like, why don't you just make the character a filmmaker? Like, this is clearly about you. And she's like, oh, well, you know. Uh. She says, right, it can't be too much <laughs> yeah. like me. Yeah. So it's like, well, then that brings everything else into question. Because she does take his suggestions at times and sort of like integrate ideas that he's had. I mean, he, he, she is asking him questions at moments to sort of prompt him. He's providing his thoughts. She's providing her thoughts. But the idea is that she's writing this, you know, in the present as we're going along. Then what comes after that moment is a creation based on the conversations that she's had with her assistants or whatever, right? Her apprentice or whoever that guy is. I mean, I don't understand what that guy's role is. Is he the, is he the writer? Your ideas, I mean, like, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why the ending blew my mind, and I was tr trying to piece it together because when. The film ends, it's Sylvia Chang with that man who we are recognizing in the film as like a man who is a version of this fiction she's created out of her past. And he gives her a box. He's like, oh, take this on the plane with you if you, you know, if you want something to look at. And it's when she opens it and we have all these photographs and the photographs say, I took these when I was missing you most and they're shots of the sky and they're all dated on the back. So when she's looking at these and she's tearing up, we then, it's cross cut with Takeshi Kaneshiro on the roof, you know, with his guitar taking those pictures. And there's something so brilliant about that because here she is, Sylvia Chang, quote unquote, the real Sylvia Chang, remembering her fiction that she's been developing throughout this entire film. So what are we looking at? What are the real memories? This is all a fiction. What's real? Like it's just it's so touching yeah. because it's it's all about I mean it goes back to this really important line I think when as she's getting older when we flash forward a bit we move beyond the film and she says while looking at her mother she's she's watching her mother watch television and she says we were too busy looking after ourselves our worlds kept getting smaller and smaller. And we stopped paying attention to the time that was going by right in front of us. And then in a really like, I think formally very different moment from the rest of the film, when the mother's watching TV, it keeps dissolving, but it's into the same shot, maybe just like slightly askew. And we maybe see like four or five variations of the mom watching TV and all that's changing is like what's happening on TV in front of her. Our worlds are getting smaller and smaller. And then by the end, she gets lost in her fiction that she's recreated again after encountering this man that she hasn't seen for many years. 
it's yeah it's a film that is so simple at first and then by the end i kept thinking about like this web is very complex yeah i i really like keyed in on, on that especially i think it's kind of early on when the screenwriting partner is like don't you think these characters are a little passive you know especially like him isn't this guy a little passive and it's like that's like life you know like shit like shit slips by you don't yeah. do the things that people do in movies right and so like it's jamming on that idea throughout the difference between yeah like it's not dramatic uh in real life sometimes most of the time you know like even if you had this this love affair like you just like I, sh I should have talked to him, but I didn't. And all of a sudden, it's like 20 years later. <laughs> like, yeah. you just blinked. You but know? again, that's also why I, I kind of am like, you know, like, the, the the idea of this, like, deep, deep, like, love, it's it's it's, it's in, it, in itself, it's just kind of a fantasy. It's, right. It, it, like, I know we see it, and the movie but shows we're, us, we're, but it's all, yeah. it's all a creation because... <laughs> At the end, when Sylvia Chang has gone there, you know, um, and and reconnected with now the real version of of this guy that she has supposedly ha supposedly had this very deep, you know, attraction and pull to across time and space and memory, uh, she's sitting there at one of his gigs, and he's you know like shredding her way, shredding away, <laughs> and she's like so excited, and she's just kind of like. Wow, he's he rocks. He's like the best. And she leans over and says to just some random woman behind her or whatever that she's like, "Man, isn't he the fucking the best or whatever?" And she's like, "Yeah, yeah, that's why we're getting married in the summer." And you see her like completely crumble where she's like, "What?" Like, "Oh shit." And then she has that moment where she's down like, "Oh, well, congratulations or whatever." And like that's what I mean. Like, "Well, they clearly aren't super connected because she didn't even know that this guy's marrying another woman or whatever, well, right? The, so, yeah. like, he never told her any of this. They clearly haven't talked in a very long <laughs> yeah. time. Yeah, even though they've, like, supposedly been writing to each other on a regular basis and as pen pals, you know? Exactly. And then you start to question that. Yeah, there's, there's, there's an unreliable narrator quality to the film that I really uh, like. Yeah, the most haunting shot in the movie is when it's revealed that she has a husband. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, like, yeah. at first we're introduced, like, she's at work, and it's like, oh, your daughter's calling. And then it's like, wow, okay, did she get pregnant with, uh, you know, Ho Jun and, and have a kid and, and raise it as a single mother? And then, like, 30 minutes later, some fucking old guy just, like, pops in the frame. It's like, hey, you need anything? You know, and it's like, yeah, the house, her, it's yeah. her husband. And you're like, this guy doesn't exist in this film. Right. Right, yeah. I'm pretty sure there's something like very similar to that in Comrades Almost a Love Story, mm. like a non-existent husband that exists within the world of this narrative, but just like <laughs> just so tangentially. In. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, it's all shit. it's all a goddamn lie, you know. Well, yeah, that's what movies are. It. Yeah, that's what movies are. They're just fantasies. They're lies. Yeah. But know? I think the passive thing is really key because it's like just the way the time slips by. It's like, yeah, sure, you know, maybe you did barf on that guy's shoes and you had like a really cute moment together yeah maybe you saw the sunrise together and you saw the sunrise together and then you blink and then you say oh yeah i'm working in this job i had no idea that my whole life would be on airplanes that i would be traveling around doing fashion like never thought i 
never pictured myself doing anything like this. And it's just all gone. It just yeah. drifted away. And some people never imagined that they would be on top of a, you know, department store in Tokyo at a children's playground and mini amusement park exactly. shooting it out with the police and an <laughs> undercover uh, military agent, you know? Uh, Too that, busy looking after themselves. <laughs> yeah. You know, one minute you're heisting, the next minute you're on this crazy carousel being shot at, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah how could he, how could he have foreseen that? <laughs> that the, the new guy, the guy who who just appeared and and joined the gang in the last two weeks. He had great credentials, though. He yeah, had like would, murdered would, people and stolen stuff. Yeah, you would know? betray <laughs> their tight knit group. You know, like how could he have foreseen this? Right. I think there's that moment, right? Isn't it with like Harry Carey Jr. where he's just like, but I checked into this guy or whatever, and it's like, well. They clearly made it up, dude. Yeah. Like, it's not that complicated. Yeah, you checked in, and it was planted false information. Yeah, they forged this... documents, dude. You didn't vet him enough. But know? I think that's also key because he is losing his goddamn mind. I mean, that's like a, a subtle sort of like, yeah. or maybe not so subtle sort of like ride throughout the movie is especially when, you know, he realizes they've been betrayed, Robert Ryan, and he immediately is like, I knew it. Griff. Griff. He was cracking up all this time. And he goes in one of the best shots in the movie. One oh, yeah. of the famous shots from the movie is when Robert Ryan fills Griff full of lead in the bathtub. And there's these holes, that, you know, pop out on the bathtub and the water's shooting out. And then he has that deranged scene where he like tenderly, you know, is like cradling Griff, dead Griff in the bathtub and being like, I could see you had no control of yourself. Absolutely none. And I knew, Griff. I knew. When you started blowing your buttons for no reason whatsoever. Griff. I wish I hadn't been right. But I was, Griff. Like always. I loved you, bro, but sorry. You bitch. You and bitch. Yeah. And, he, and that moment, you're like, this guy has cracked. You know, he's yeah. like deranged. And and just like, even when he finds out Stack is, is an agent, he plays it like a breakup scene. You know, he's like playing with the billiard ball. Just yeah. like the betrayal. Yeah. <laughs> he's talking about, you know, yeah honor betrayal you know and and he's just like throwing glances at robert stack and deforest kelly who's just kind of like what is this guy yeah. going on about yeah, get mean, me on the uss enterprise stack, yeah you know it, it reminds me of the breakup in tempting heart when he says like no wishy-washy like i want a clean break if we're gonna do this and that's how it feels and robert ryan guns that guy down <laughs> in the tub i mean it's really it's an incredible point counterpoint of the two tub scenes in the movie where one of them is essentially a showcase of two people falling in love and like bridging cultures and being as though like yeah ooh, i got my, made my eggs in the tub and we're having a laugh about how we both have different vernacular for describing eggs and then later we have a murder a breakup scene in, in the tub i think it's intentional oh i'm sure i'm sure <laughs> yeah well i guess andy who are some of your favorite visionaries you're you're your folks behind the camera visioning well, through that viewfinder. Yeah, you know, I mean, you already referenced one, you know, in terms of me just thinking of 
like a single movie. I mean, a- Agnes Godard's work in Beau Travai, which you already mentioned. Yeah. I mean, that is, yeah, it's one of the, the, the most stunning works of, of the moving image hands down bar none full stop it's it's incredible and um you know i would i would probably say though i think the first like cinematographer that i think i really became aware of in terms of like oh wow like they can do crazy shit would probably be when i was a, an undergrad and i had just discovered the french new wave and the prolific work of Raoul Coutard, I think one of the most like, you know, uh, dynamic virtuosos in the world of cinematography. I mean, his work being sort of unique as well, depending on, you know, which director he was collaborating with. You know, he wasn't just a sort of like one trick pony. He could do so much. He could experiment. He could play it straight when he needed to. He could copy the classic Hollywood setups like a, like a season, like a Joe McDonald, you know, like a, like a season pro of, of that era. So Raul Qatar has, I think, always been one of my, uh, you know, on my Mount Rushmore of, I think, like great cinematographers. And, and again, you know, we've talked about it. You both have seen it. Um, even outside of his work with the, the, the Nouvelle Vague boys, but the 317th platoon is one of the most immersively and powerfully shot, uh, black and white war films. Yeah. Yeah, dude. I mean, he was a combat cameraman as well. And I think that shows in his ability to just sort of like get down and dirty when he had to, and certainly play with the toys when Godard is suddenly like, yeah, let's do contempt or whatever. Let's like... Let's put it on tracks and have a have a have a blast. But he could just grab that thing handheld and like still capture poetic images. You know, it wasn't just a sort of like knockoff kind of docudrama style. Like he's getting he's getting some real like you know um, poetic images out there in the the jungles of Indochina. So yeah, Raul Qatar for sure. And I guarantee you, he knew who Joe McDonald was because in my research. The only writing I could find that mentioned Joe McDonald was a Godard piece on Nicholas Ray and a Luke Moulet piece on Sam Fuller, where they both are like, Joe McDonald, that's our guy, you know? And it's like, of course, the Kaye guys are the only goddamn people ever in the 50s who were like, Joe McDonald is on some next level shit, you know? And they marked it at the time, you know, so... With Fuller being a, a North Star yeah, for them. I mean, of course, and Ray as well. Yeah, you, you watch that and you go, yeah, it's just classic. But uh, great, great job, guys. Uh, next week. Yeah, who do we got? It's Ryan's topic. Mm-hmm. What you got for us this time? Just a, a week or two ago, Molly and I watched uh, an Ernst Lubitsch film, Heaven Can Wait. Saw that for the first time. And I was really charmed by... I was just realizing it's been a long time since I've seen a movie where we have like we're following a protagonist when they're a child uh, into their 20s, into middle age, and then like all the way on to them wearing old man makeup by the end of the film. And it, it seems like it was something that was more prevalent back in the day, but they are there are still people doing it, but just like a whole life, you know, a movie that captures a whole life. So that's basically the topic is give me a film about a fictional character like no biopics no real people that just captures 
as much of a life as possible. I'm not going to be that strict, but, you know, bonus points if we've got actors in old men makeup, or even if new actors are playing that same character. Um, it, it, the largest swath of time you can find is the more the merrier, right? Um, but basically that, like multiple decades in a person's life, covering a good swath of time. My foundation students are watching uh, Citizen Kane next week, so they're they're going to be there on you that go. level for sure. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. That, that would be one example for it sure. certainly would. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies. You can listen to us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. And you can send emails to Marsh's Mailbag at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. The enemy intelligence was on the ball. The police were wise. The police? How could anybody tip them off? We're the only ones who knew. That's right. We were the only ones who knew. Any ideas? Sure. Sure, I know who tipped them off. Ooh. I never could figure a man would betray a friend. It must take some uh, special kind of guy. A guy who gets a kick out of worming his way in and uh, just when you get to like him. In goes a knife, right? Well, that's the way it goes. It takes all kinds. Yeah.